This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey there. We at Blue Wire wanted to thank you for your continued support of this podcast. With over 90 podcasts across our network, we are committed to bringing you great content to fill that sport-shaped hole in your heart. To find more Blue Wire pods, search for us on iTunes or check out bluewirepods.com. And remember, one day sports will return and it will be glorious. Thanks for listening. On to the show. Hey there, hi there, hello there, Hardwood Box listeners. This is Dan Valley coming at you with a housekeeping note. Before the housekeeping notes, just want to offer up a mea culpa at some point during this podcast. I think it's actually twice. I refer to Michael Jordan's first title as coming in 1990. I am very much aware that it didn't come until 1991. Just got my years mixed up. It was late. I wanted to get out in front of this before we got to the well actuallys in the comments section. All right, let's get to potting. Hey, hi, hello, Hardware Knox listeners. I am Dan Favalli coming at you not only with Andrew D. Bailey, but absolutely positively on my lonesome this time. This is going to be our first reaction pod to the Last Dance documentary about Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls, predominantly that 97-98 team. We'll try and have those up Sunday nights or let's say midnight Monday mornings within an hour after the documentary airs. Andy will normally be joining me on those, but this week he was unable to, so I'm going to roll forward and do it myself. Also have a couple of just news slash rumory notes to catch up on that we haven't talked about while we've been rolling out our historical player ranking series. Before we cannonball into all that fun, though, I just want to remind, implore, beg, plead with everyone, rate, review, subscribe to us on iTunes. That's still the best way to let us know that you're out there and that you're listening and to combat any one-star reviews we've gotten as a direct result of our comments or semi-defense of Kyrie Irving. So we thank everyone that has done that already. If you have done all those things, please refer us. Retweet the promos that we put out on Twitter. Tell your friends, family members, frenemies, anybody that you could think of, random people on social media. They'll thank you later. Follow us on Twitter as well, at Hardwood Knox. You can also subscribe and should subscribe to our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox. Mostly all of our pods will be up on there. The historical player ranking series, I have a playlist set up so you can check out all the ones that we've done, and that's where all 30 teams will be housed. Also have a landing page on NBA Math for that, or again, you can find those. Just check your podcast player and search through all of them. We have done up through the Denver Nuggets, as I record this, and the Detroit Pistons will be coming soon, so be sure to check those out. Shout out to our sponsor, as always, betonline.ag. You'll be hearing from them shortly. That's another great way to support the pod is to use that promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, to get your welcome bonus on that first deposit you make. With all of that said, let's get into some quick news and and rumor notes. Just two that I really have highlighted. We're catching up on this one. Uh, David Aldridge of of The Athletic, sort of in a, a chat, mentioned 
something about the Jazz growing frustrated with Rudy Gobert before the whole coronavirus issue popped up. This is from him responding to a uh, a reader quote there have been rumblings well before either of them contracted coronavirus that the jazz were growing weary of gobert not that they were actively shopping him or trying to get rid of him but that he might be more available than you'd think a defensive player of the year and guy who is such an anchor would be it will not surprise me if utah moves on after this season this is really interesting because rudy gobert was sort of a polarizing figure figure when you look at the future before this whole coronavirus thing because he's going to be extension eligible this summer and if you're the jazz no you don't have to give him a super max but you do have to figure out whether you want to extend him at all and what type of money he's going to cost he is an incredible anchor for your defense there have been times i spoke with andy about this our resident jazz aficionado where he's just seemed disinterested on defense this year but he's still one of the three to five biggest difference makers on defense in the league and he's important to what they do but he's slated to earn 26.5 million dollars in 2020 2021 and if you're going to have to pay him similar money after that moving forward over two three four years whatever it is you get into some risky territory he turns 28 this june and we know that the center position has been increasingly devalued when you look at specifically traditional bigs who are really only going to be rim runners on offense as opposed to jump shooters, guys who can spray the ball when they're rolling to the basket out to other shooters. That's really never been much of Gobert's game. That all said, he's more switchable on defense than people really give him credit for. Just because he struggled in certain playoff series, people keep going back to that Houston Rockets series from from last year. While what the Jazz did wasn't working at first. They actually did kind of have a handle on Houston's offense towards the end. That's not to say that Rudy Gobert, uh, had that happened from from the jump, would have been the reason that they won that series. I'm not saying that he isn't schemable in, in certain matchups, but when you're looking at bigs who could be played off the floor, Rudy Gobert is going to be more of an exception than a rule. You're going to have an easier time, much easier time, playing other bigs off the floor uh, than him. And the fact that you can funnel basically entire offenses into the paint because you know that he's going to be there to just swallow shots hole at the rim or to deter them in general that's a really big deal still i wouldn't give him close to max money in his next contract it's just too uneasy looking ahead and i i know that donovan mitchell is more important to the jazz's future at this point just because he's younger and he sort of fits the the archetype of what these champion building blocks are supposed to be and that's a a primary score but he's still not the most efficient guy i know that mike conley trade really hasn't panned out for utah but between getting jordan clarkson having boyan bogdanovich donovan mitchell's responsibility is at least slightly alleviated compared to last year and he doesn't really have the efficiency numbers to, to back that up his pull-up percentages are really all over the place you can't trust him to get at uh to the free throw line uh on a reliable clip and the numbers when he plays without Rudy Gobert, the Jazz are getting absolutely slaughtered during that time. And it's not the defense's problem. Their, their offense has been a disaster during those minutes. And that's what puts the Jazz in such this weird situation is that Donovan Mitchell is clearly the most important asset looking into the future. But Rudy Gobert is their most valuable player right now. And Donovan Mitchell hasn't done anything to me that would suggest this is on the verge of changing. And it certainly hasn't changed yet by this point. So what he might be 
I'm talking about Donovan Mitchell, is exceeding what he actually is right now, and that really warps the Jazz's future. Even if you take Donovan Mitchell out of the equation, though, I think you have to be careful with Gobert's next contract. And if the Jazz really wanted to, I wonder if they could play hardball, let him reach free agency in 2021, and sort of let the, the market dictate his price. The problem with that is you're dealing with egos in the NBA, and he might not forget that they had the chance to extend him and didn't. That could prompt him to leave, and you obviously don't want to lose him for nothing. The flip side of all this is it wouldn't surprise me either if he got moved, but I just don't know what you move him for. Teams don't really need centers at this point, and Gobert is an exception in the sense that because he's a defensive player of the year, because he can effectively guarantee you, let's say, a top 10 or 12 defense, if you just have barely any other defensive talent around him, there will be interest. But what are you getting in return just because he's going to be a free agent in 2021 because of what he might have to make should his next team re-sign him? Big, bigs for wing, bigs for guards trades are rare in general at this point. And when you factor in all the financial baggage, let's call it, that comes into play with Rudy Gobert, I don't know who's going to come over the top with a package. A lot of people have suggested that the Boston Celtics might get involved. Uh, the problems with that is they still don't have salary filler for that. They're not going to give up Jalen Brown for, for Rudy Gobert. And so you can forget about Jalen Brown, uh, Jason Tatum. I, the Jazz are not going to want Gordon Hayward back if, if that was even an option. The other thing for me is while I do believe Boston sort of understands that they need to put more pressure on the rim with their bigs than they have in years past, Brad Stevens runs an offense that's just more reliant on the pick and pop. They like their bigs to be able to space the floor a little bit, and Rudy Gobert isn't going to help a ton with that. And then once you move on from them, you're dealing with your target demographic of suitors is going to be teams that want to contend immediately. And those squads need a center, in most cases, even less um, than just overall. Where is Rudy Gobert going to be the best fit there then. Would the Clippers like him? Sure. But what do you want from the Clippers? You can't take, a, a, you know, they're limited in what they can give up in terms of draft picks, and you can't really take Landry Shamit as the centerpiece of a deal in Rudy Gobert and then win the press conference. I just don't think the Jazz are, are at that point. Could the Knicks maybe include Mitchell Robinson, uh, picks, perhaps, but what does that do for the Jazz? And that's what makes this even more complicated, is the Jazz are looking to win now, unless moving Rudy Gobert signals that they're ready to rebuild, which I don't think it would, because Donovan Mitchell is as overrated, let's say, as he might be. He's still an impact player now. You signed uh, and acquired Bojan Bogdanovich last summer. Uh, you have Joe Ingles on the books. You just extended Royce O'Neal. This isn't a team that seems like it's gearing up for a rebuild, and I just don't know. The list of suitors there is, is short to begin with, and then the, the packages that you could get back in return, I just don't think they're going to be as impressive or as valuable to the Jazz as what Rudy Gobert actually does for them. We're talking about an all-NBA center, a, a defensive player of the year, and I just don't think the value on the trade market is ever going to match up with that. The hope for them, I think, then, is if they are worried at all about the Mitchell-Gobert relationship, you hope the two quash that, and I really don't see that being a huge deal long-term. The second thing that you have to be most concerned about is I think you wait out the contract situation or you just hope that maybe you're able to strike a better deal in extension talks than, than you originally thought. But you, you've, we've, we're past the point where I think they can justify giving him this monster deal moving forward just because where else are they going to spend that money if, if that's the, the reaction there. 
our final news note, and perhaps the most important one, is Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reported over the weekend that the NBA is reopening team practice facilities uh, soon where local restrictions have eased. And this is from the article, the news article that Woj published. Uh, players can return to team facilities in states such as Georgia for voluntary individual workouts as soon as next week, which allows for NBA organizations to start allowing players to return to training in a professional, safe environment. Woj goes on to note that group workouts are still going to be off limits. I I don't I think this is interesting in the sense that should the NBA come back to these markets where they've reopened things more quickly, suddenly have a competitive advantage over those that have remained closed? Because yes, every team's probably gonna get a two, three week training camp, whatever it is, should the NBA season resume. But what if you have guys who've been able to work out and practice at the training facility, even at an individual level for a month before that. I don't think it's a huge issue, just as people have pointed out, big markets have had such a huge advantage in free agency and just in general when it comes to attracting players. If we're going to give a team like Oklahoma City or the Atlanta Hawks, who aren't even going to be in the playoffs, uh, the competitive advantage of actually having players being allowed into gyms, that's really a non-issue. The more important aspect of this would be to monitor how the the country responds to these stay-at-home restrictions being loosened close to across the board. I know there are going to be a a bunch of other states, including my own, which is New York, where they're going to remain closed. I I would be surprised if it happens if if we start reopening things here personally before June. Uh, But what is the response going to be elsewhere? If there is the second waves of the coronavirus breaking out, where we get to a point where those states are going to shut down again, that actually might end up jeopardizing the NBA season more. And that's why I don't really take this news as a harbinger one way or the other, in fact, that the NBA is nearing a return or has hashed out how they how they would return should all the states sort of loosen their stay-at-home orders. It is still something worth monitoring, though, just because there are no sports, live sports right now, and th- this news is, is all we have to hang on. But at least players the vast majority of which don't have these huge home gyms or gymnasiums at their house. It's great that they can get in for individual workouts. Uh, I tend to wonder, though, if some of the states are just reopening too soon in general. Uh, This specific issue, though, I don't really think is too pertinent to that just because we're talking about uh, individual workouts rather than these huge group practice sessions. And it sounds like they're going to be voluntary. So if players feel uncomfortable with doing it, then then they don't have to. And the other hope would obviously be that if there are some players that are a little bit more loosey-goosey than others who, once their market has loosened the stay-at-home orders, they're going out, they're doing more regular things, uh, does them going to the gym, maybe working out with a trainer, uh, does that threaten to pass on the coronavirus to the, through the rest of the team? That way, all things that we have to keep track of, but the NBA, in some form, in some small capacity, is reopening its doors. Take that for for what it is, and, and let's just keep an eye on, on what happens to it moving forward. Attention Hardwood Knox listeners. With currently no NBA, NHL, or MLB, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, Bet Online, still has hundreds of events, games, and props to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. Missing the NFL? No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can also bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the nation's hot dog eating contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. 
Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet online, your online wagering experts. Let's talk about episodes three and four of the Last Dance documentary, though. Uh, if you haven't watched it, I guess I could say that there are spoilers ahead, but all this stuff has happened in the past, so I don't know how it's considered spoilers. If you're like me, though, I think you're finally appreciating that maybe you were too young to fully understand what was going on during that 97-98 season with Chicago, just how open the, the discord was or, or how obvious it was that this was going to be the final season for this core. And that's what I took away from episodes one and two more so than, than anything else. And of course, the Scotty Pippen stuff there was absolutely fantastic. So if you haven't checked out those first two episodes, I would highly recommend them. Episodes three and four were good as well. We really saw a peek behind the curtain of Dennis Rodman. Didn't get too much into his childhood. That was more so in the ESPN 30 for 30 doc that they did on him, which I actually have not seen, but I heard it's fantastic. So I need to check that out and we'll check that out. And I just recommend it blindly just based off what I've heard from other people to all of you. Uh, what I really appreciated about this was sort of the the quotes we got throughout episodes three and a little bit into four about how important Dennis Rodman really was or how much other players uh, despised going up against him. Uh, so this is from Gary Payton said in this doc, Dennis Rodman was the fuck up person. He fucks everything up. He was a pest shutting down whoever he wanted to. And if you go back and look at Dennis Rodman highlights, there are, are just some amazing plays that he had in his athletic prime, many of which came before he was ever in Chicago. You look at the chase down blocks he had with Detroit. Uh, has, if you guys don't remember the block he actually had on Scottie Pippen in transition, just absolutely swallowed that shot is a real fun one to watch. Just also just this really perpetual hustler on the court. And he kind of understood his role. And he mentioned that in the documentary that he really started to grasp that his value was on the the defensive end. And uh, you look at the way he boxed out and fought for rebounds, went up for, for putbacks. Uh, MJ said this about Rodman in episode three. Dennis is one of the smartest guys I played with. He had no limits to, to what he does. Dennis Rodman also, at the beginning of episode three, said this, and I really don't think it, it probably is one of those quotes that could be aggregated or, or be considered hot takey, but I really don't think it is. He said, Dennis Rodman said, you got the great Michael Jordan, the great Scottie Pippen, the great Phil Jackson, but if you take me away from this team, do they still win a championship? I don't think so. Probably fair on some level. Uh, just, uh, I don't think when you look at these Bulls teams, there, I do feel like there's this tendency not to forget about Dennis Rodman, but maybe you talk about Steve Kerr more so than you do Dennis Rodman. And a large part of that, Steve Kerr has even said, uh, is because that he is now famous for, for being a coach of the Warriors, had his career as an analyst, was also in the front office for the Phoenix Suns. Maybe that factors into it, but Dennis Rodman is still one of the more underrated uh, talents the NBA has ever seen. And you should just go back and watch some Dennis Rodman highlight film. I made a video for the Blue Wire Twitter account. Follow at Blue Wire Pods. Nice plug there. Just for some of his, some of his best highlights leading up to um, episodes three and four because we knew it was going to be a focus of him. There was this one clip that I found where he's just really hassling Magic Johnson. Like that's the kind of diverse, defensive versatility that he had. Basically one through five. And so just go back, check out those Dennis Rodman highlights. Moving on from the Dennis Rodman stuff, one of the other things that I found so interesting 
that I think is a, k- a kitchen sink takeaway at this point through the first four episodes is how different the media landscape was, how more candid it seems like players were in interviews. I know we talk about how social media, uh, Instagram, and just the, the access that we have to players now, it, it provides more of a window into what they're doing and what they're all about. And I don't fully disagree with that but we're just not going to see i feel like as honest answers as we might have seen uh in those years when the media scrums were smaller i mean if you watch this documentary when and i'm going to talk about michael jordan addressing his future in a second but when you look at just some of the home scrums of reporters talking to michael jordan they really weren't all that big if that were today they would just be absolutely massive and he would probably have to have these huge podium interviews uh, even after shootarounds or something. And th- I, I do really find that interesting. And then also just how uh, honest or more likely the player's word is be brutally honest is something that stands out. We've talked about the Scotty Pippen trade demand, demands plural. It happened more than once with the Bulls. As a result of this documentary, he says uh, in episode four, bottom line is I was willing to accept a trade if they did it, and I knew they weren't going to do it. And that was him talking about his decision to walk back the the trade demand. It's just, it's absolutely wild how really honest these players were, how open that trade demand was. Yeah, we've dealt with the Jimmy Butler stuff um, in the modern era, and we have all these these rumors that sort of sprinkle out. At the same time, I, I almost wish that we have, I'm not really a nostalgic person. I'm not an old school guy. I, I don't lament uh, the ba- uh, the basketball is that basketball now isn't what it was then. I actually think that today's players are probably more talented than any generation we've seen. But I really would love to see more of these these insightful quotes. And I don't think it's necessarily the players' fault. They're more guarded now because of social media. And then they're just, we're saturated. They're saturated by uh, media members like myself. It's just, it's part of the job description now. And it seems like the Bulls were sort of starting to feel that type of pressure during this season because of the finality of this run together. Dennis Rodman said during this documentary, it's not just basketball that we have to deal with on this team. It's the pressure of the bullshit. I'll play the game for free, but you get paid for the bullshit after you leave the floor. That probably still applies today. We make fun of players for them speaking about their love of the game or that they would do this job for free if if they could, yada, yada, yada. The money is important to everybody and maybe more important to or definitely more important to some than others. But what these players just have to deal with, particularly now, the constant, relentless, unending scrutiny, I don't necessarily admire it. I've said on many occasions that I wish players did lean into the meme culture a little bit more. I don't have a problem with people captioning screenshots and photos with with jokey terms, but when you're really criticizing a player, really getting into their value as a person based off what they're doing on the basketball court we are entering just it's not uncharted territory and maybe in some instances it's not necessarily unfair territory but it, it again the word would just be relentless as every aspect of their lives is on display and this bulls team back then seemed like an anomaly in that regard where it seems like that that attention was was starting to wear on them and michael jordan this is the next topic i want to talk about he had said that he wasn't going to come back after the 97-98 season to play for anyone except Phil Jackson. And meanwhile, you had Jerry Krause saying that Phil Jackson was absolutely going to be done after that year. So Jordan was being asked about his future basically at, at every stop. He even mentioned to the reporters, it's not the the home beat writers that he was necessarily worried about answering to. It's the, it's the road scrums because they had to ask him the same question 
over and over again every time he traveled. And I understand both sides. I could understand Jordan getting frustrated with it. I could also understand the questions being asked because that is uh, a reporter's job, a media member's job, is they have to ask the questions that they, they know the readers, the fans are going to, to care about. And I found most interesting the way that Jordan was willing to entertain those questions. He kept giving the same answers about how essentially he didn't want to talk about it or just reiterating what he had said already, that he wouldn't play for anyone except Phil Jackson. But you kind of neutralize the the interest in that effect, is that you're entertaining the questions and you're not making a big deal. I think Kevin Durant probably could have stood to take a took a page out of Jordan's book when we're looking at all the questions he faced during the 2018-2019 season about his future with the Warriors. I totally understand that these questions can get grading, but Jordan was really just this media savant. You look at just the way he complimented his teammates, uh, namely Scottie Pippen, and then even the stuff he says now about Dennis Rodman, just really knew how to work the room in that regard. And I think that it's something that current players could probably stand to learn from if they know if they're a superstar and they know they're going to get all these questions lobbed their way about impending free agency. You don't have to be necessarily hostile about it. You can just shut it down by saying, I've already commented on it and my, my thoughts on it, my stance, my opinion, my thoughts, my motivations, they haven't changed to this point. And I think that's probably the best way to handle it. I'm not in their shoes, though, again, so I, I understand that I really can't empathize with them to that extent. I just, looking at MJ, knowing the type of player he was and how much interest there would have been in what he was going to do after that year, particularly knowing he had already walked away from the game once, the fact that he was able to handle those incessant, incessant questions so well, it's something that I, I kind of respect and... Uh, it, again, I think it provides a blueprint for how today's free agents, particularly the big name ones, can can carry themselves when, when they're dealing with all those types of inquiries into their future. I wanted to also talk about the, the Jerry Krause element of all this. There wasn't as much focus on him in episodes three and four as there was in one and two, where I wouldn't really even stop short of saying the Bulls or that he was thrown under the bus for uh, the finality of this 97-98 season. And you could see that Jordan was visibly frustrated with him during those episodes, given the clips of, of the comments that he threw Jerry Krause's way. There is two sides to every story. Jerry Krause is not alive right now to tell his, but in in this in these two seg- uh, these two episodes, uh, he came out at the All-Star break just reiterating that Phil Jackson wouldn't be back, and while they would love to have Michael Jordan back, he's going to have to come to terms with uh, Phil Jackson not being there. The talk about just throwing gasoline on the fire. Probably just not the, the smartest thing to say in that regard, and we don't really have front office executives, basketball operations guys coming out in public and saying that anymore. It's, it's again, I just want to reiterate the, the, the discrepancy between what players and basketball ops pl- uh, members are willing to say on record to the public compared to what they're willing to say now. We might have more access. I honestly don't know if we have more insight, though, or if we have more access to the truth, just because it seems like, I mean, kudos to the players for a lot of them becoming media experts, and they know how to talk their way around questions. I just appreciate this I'm sure was at times detrimental candor. What I was reminded of, though, is Jerry Cross was not always this villainous figure. They showed clips of the team celebrating their for their first title, 1990, and Scottie Pippen, Jerry Krause is on the plane dancing, and Scottie Pippen, it, he and him seem to have a really good rapport, and so it's just as the years went on, there were a lot of things that built up. You look at Scottie Pippen's contract, that was a focus of episodes one and two as well. Uh, you look at him trying to push Phil Jackson out on multiple occasions, um, the reaction that that got from, from Michael Jordan, and then combined with just the 
open-ended nature of how 97-98 was going to be this core's final year, that really seemed to damage not just the whatever poor relationship he might have had with the players, with the coaches, but just his legacy in Chicago in general, because he did do a lot of good for the Bulls, and he was known as this really uh, scouting expert. There's just that's going to be lost to history, um, to the anecdotes that are gleaned from this documentary, but the the events that led up to the Bulls' dissolution in general. Is that fair? Is it unfair? I honestly don't know. The jokes are going to be made. I'm probably going to make a few of them myself. Uh, but it, it does, to me, it does suck that this wasn't released when Jerry Krause was still alive, just to at least get his side of the story. I'm not trying to take sides here or whatever, but I'm, I'm a big fan of the two-sided context. I'm also a big fan of, of the jokes, so you can keep those coming. I, I do think there's a clear separation there where you can joke about it, Pippen's contract and Pippen's agent, without necessarily ignoring the truth that, yeah, his agent and Bulls ownership didn't want Pippen to, to sign that seven-year, $18 million deal either. And then I think you can make those jokes without annoying the fact that given uh, Pippen's life background, him coming from such poverty that he really wanted that financial security that came with the seven-year, $18 million deal. I don't think you can fault him for signing it. I also don't think you can fault him for becoming frustrated that he became so overpaid. Sticking with episodes three and four, though, since that was just a little bit of a... We'll turn back to episodes one and two. Uh, what I think other people kind of forgot, or at least I forgot, I, I'm, I'm not trying to loop everyone into my own thoughts, uh, th episodes three and four dealt with Phil Jackson starting out with the Bulls and then working his way up to head coach uh, to succeed Doug Collins and how Michael Jordan wasn't even really this huge supporter of Phil Jackson at first, uh, how skeptical he was of the triangle offense because it was taking the ball out of his hands. Phil Jackson just bluntly saying to Michael Jordan, I don't anticipate you leading the league in scoring anymore in this system. And it did seem that there was some pushback from, from Jordan, but you got to a point where he really bought in and he was starting to trust his teammates. That's something that the documentary touches on too, is he was certainly demanding, and we've seen those clips too, and we've just known those stories as well. Uh, they border on myth now and how cruel he could have been or how hard he was uncertain teammates, but there was that willingness to trust. There was something that stands out to me is in one of these episodes, uh, Phil Jackson tells him that he needs to pass the ball to, to John Paxson uh, after a play where he didn't really see him or saw him and decided to take a contested shot. Jordan, then on the, the next instance where he has the opportunity to pass to Paxson, he does. Paxson makes the shot, and that sort of just builds his trust. And you, you even talk about Steve Kerr that way, the passes that he's, he threw to him as well. Jordan did have this level of trust and appreciation for his teammates, regardless of how hard he was on them at stages. And this provided a nice window into how that trust was formed, because it does seem like Jordan was skeptical on many, if not every level to begin with when Phil Jackson came in because he was so used to having the ball in his hands and having the game catered to his isolations. And to see that relationship eventually be forged with Phil Jackson's where you go from when Phil starts out, Jordan misses Doug Collins, uh, Jordan doesn't really support him 100% to fast forward to the 97-98 season, he's saying he won't come back. He's going to retire if Phil Jackson doesn't come back. Uh, that was... That was absolutely incredible to sort of see those stages from my end. Uh, one of the final things I want to talk about, too, Dennis Rodman leaving in the middle of a, a bull season for a vacation and how how open 
that just was. Just open knowledge it was. Could you imagine someone doing that today? You know, Derrick Rose going AWOL from the Knicks. It's a little bit different because it wasn't for as long, and again, it was AWOL. Dennis Rodman straight up told Phil Jackson in the middle of the 97-98 season that he needed a vacation. I I so respect that. He ends up going to Vegas, and we get all these cool anecdotes from, from that moment. Um, Michael Jordan had told Phil Jackson uh, that if he let... This is what he said. He goes, I'm looking at Phil. And I like, you ain't going to get that dude back in 48 hours. I don't care what you say. He's done. That was MJ's reaction to Phil Jackson giving Dennis Robin a 48-hour vacation in Vegas. Dennis Robin, of course, did not come back on time, at least. Uh, the Bulls, Jordan says they actually had to go get him. And Jordan says, we had to go get his ass out of bed. I'm not going to say what's in his bed or where he was. Robin was also dating Karma Electra at the time, and she was apparently there when Jordan showed up. And she said, there's a knock on the door. It's Michael Jordan. And I hid. I didn't want him to see me like that. I'm just, like, hiding behind the couch with covers over me. Just absolutely wild. Just a wild story that this was happening, again, so openly to one of the best teams uh, in NBA history, to a squad that's going for a three-peat, that Dennis Rodman leaves for a a team approved at first, uh, sabbatical in, in Vegas, and then it ends up that he does sort of go AWOL. He's away from the Bulls without permission, and they physically have to go get him. Crazy, crazy times. And I, I couldn't imagine what would if that happened today just because of uh, social media and then how players really couldn't get their privacy. You know, Carmen Electra talk about how much Dennis liked to party, where you go to club after club after club after hours club. You can't really do that today because there's always going to be videos posted on social media from people who recognize NBA fans there. It was really just almost a different life for these guys. What I will say about Dennis Rodman, I really respected the way that this documentary got into these episodes about how much of a transition it was for him to all of a sudden be, in essence, Michael Jordan's number two while Scottie Pippen was out dealing with his injury, recovering from his injury with the whole trade demand stuff going on. Um, he had to be, as MJ put it, on the straight and arrow, and that was something that he needed to learn. And he really ended up giving Jordan what he needed during that stretch. But then Scottie Pippen came back, and that was another adjustment for Dennis Rodman. This documentary also addressed how Rodman was also sort of down after that. And, and Rodman mentioned how he went back to being the third wheel. Yeah, they were the three most important players on the team, but there was that relationship, that chemistry, that shared importance between Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan that Dennis Rodman wasn't really entirely a part of, and he, he felt the effects of that. It's another instance of, you know, athletes are, are human, and Dennis Rodman, his his past, again, I'll point you back to, I've certainly read about it, but I'll point you back to that 30 for 30 documentary. Just a tough, just a tough life, and sort of how that stuck with him a little bit, or a lot leading into his NBA career, and then how he wasn't really able to find this full-fledged home until uh, he ended up with Chicago, and everyone mentions how the Bulls and Jordan and Pippen and Phil Jackson accepted him for for what he was. The um, incident that they talk about where he's holding a gun when he's with the Pistons um, late at night, and and they find him, and then all of a sudden that offseason he's gone from the Pistons, that's really sad too, because it infers that these teams didn't have an obligation to players and I don't mental health was clearly not a focus as much of a focus back then as it is now and you you sort of that's something that that you can lament is would today's NBA today's public conscience be more accepting of Dennis Rodman 
uh, from the from the get go, where he doesn't have to go to the Bulls to be really appreciated by by his own. And was he even really ever fully appreciated there? J- just so many things that I, I find interesting when when you're really looking uh, at at Rodman just through that lens. And I thought it was great to see him get basically an entire episode, and then there was a little bit of focus in episode four about um, that trip to Vegas. I really liked seeing all that. There are going to be some of those stories, again, that stand out, like Michael Jordan having a knock on his door where wherever he was. Uh, but I, I really res- I really just enjoyed just everything from it. When you're seeing how uh, Gary Payton, how much he respected him, how much Jordan respected him, calling him one of the smartest players he uh, our smartest teammates he he ever had. Uh, even Phil Jackson's just reaction to Dennis Rodman. There de- there did seem to be that that nurturing from Phil Jackson there. And I think my favorite part though too was so once Rodman comes back from his his Vegas hiatus, whatever you want to call it, the Bulls wanted to focus on getting him in shape, so they ran this drill where the whole team had a jog, and that the player from the back of the line would end up having to be at the front of the line, and. Michael Jordan essentially instructed the team that who's ever at the front has to run slow because he didn't want to be punished for Dennis Rodman's lack of conditioning, except that when they started the drill, Dennis Rodman's going harder than anyone else, that he just needed to get away, came back, and was just fully focused. Dennis Rodman, man, just, I wish I was old enough to remember watching Prime, Dennis Rodman. Again, go back and watch those clips, just hustle unending, personified, incredible. The last and final thing I want to talk about is they did really go into Michael Jordan's shot on Craig Elo. Uh, my f- my favorite thing about that was Jordan of today sort of addressing that, that Elo shot. He was, one, mad that Ron Harper wasn't put on him uh, during those moments. And Ron Harper was pissed that the Cavs didn't put him on Jordan. And then, so afterwards, Jordan hits it and his reaction to it, this is present-day Jordan, he's basically like, he said, get the fuck out of here. Go to, go the fuck anywhere, but you're out of here. Who's ever not with us, all you fuckers go to hell. And that was really him just remembering how uh, the writers, even Bulls beat writers, had written Chicago off during that time, and he was just ecstatic to, to win that series. I love that we're sort of getting... This is Michael Jordan, uh, older Michael Jordan, owner of the Charlotte Hornets, just being able to go back to those days and having that recall and just saying... Who's ever not with us? All you, all you fuckers, go to hell. I, I love that type of react, that hyperbolic reaction. I'm, I'm absolutely positively here for it. Uh, and the, the Elo shot. It's funny that it's so synonymous with Jordan's legacy because it's like it didn't come during one of his championship seasons, and it's not something that pushed the the Bulls to the the finals or anything. That pointed, yeah, it's certainly one of the most iconic shots in in NBA history, uh, but. I do feel like it sometimes gets more shine than that final shot that he had on Russell. Maybe I'm actually wrong there. Perhaps I'm living too much in past moments since we're looking at this documentary, but I love hearing present-day Jordan now comment on looking back at these moments, and I, I particularly just enjoyed all the Dennis Rodman stuff through through this episode. If I hope you enjoyed this solo episode, by the way. Uh, I hope it wasn't too recappy. I hope there was just some analysis that you appreciated. If there's something you want to see us do differently, maybe you want us to hold a mailbag about the the Last Edge documentary uh, as we publish them weekly. We could try that. Shout it, shout me out on Twitter. Let let me know at Hardwood Knox or at Danfa Valley F A V A L E. Once again, just want to remind, implore you to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever else you're getting your podcast. Still trying to grow this community, still trying to publish regular content. I believe we'll have three pods for you this week. So hopefully you appreciate the episodes that we're continuing to publish. And until next time, 
I leave you with a shout out too. Who else? But Dennis Rodman.